This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Welcome back to the show. Uh, oh man, that's just not a great... It's... <laughs> no, leave it. Don't you dare get rid of it. I love it. It's your same intro every week and it's my favorite. Like I always want to just... I want to quote you and copy it every time. I know. Welcome we, back to the show. We do have. We made, we joked a bit ago about a couple episodes ago about making a like a bingo card or whatever with all the things that we always say. <laughs> yeah. I think nobody's sent us one yet, but I think we totally could. Hey, slackers! Welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. Your radio voice? Well, no, I was just trying to do it. I was trying to do it with different inflections. I like it's good. I like it. It's a little bit deeper. Yeah, why not? Oh man! I'm joined as always by my co-host, who doesn't have a name, unfortunately. He we just found him on the side of the road. So, uh, how's it going? You're fired. This guy. Jeez, Louise. This guy. You know what? It's Friday, as you people know. I know you're listening on Monday. We talk about this every week, but it's Friday, and uh, I'm good. Hey, I'm down 2.2 pounds for those of you who are counting ounces. What You, you lifted it in that? pounds, and then you said for those of you who are counting in ounces. Well, the point two aren't those ounces? No, I don't think so, because that would just be the decimal place of the pounds. I don't know how that works. I'm not a mathematician. I write, and I talk, okay? Well, for those of you who count in decimal points... <laughs> There you go. Which probably not a lot of you listening to the show, I'll be real honest. <laughs> probably nobody cares. <laughs> ah, what's up with you, pal? I'm fine. I don't, I mean, my, <laughs> no, I mean, I even, I thought about it this morning because I knew we were going to have this conversation and my instinct is to say, I'm good, I'm good, you know, but I mean, I know that we talk on the show and both of us write and such about being honest about stuff, and so I don't. It's all kind of bullshit if we don't do it. So I'm fine. Dang! I love when you break out the cuss words. Whew. Bring it I'm on. Just, I mean, it is. You know, if we're not willing to, so I. You know, there's a bunch of transitions coming up as we kind of finish out the school year and move into some other stuff. Uh, so, just trying to figure out pretty much anything about what Broken Eyes life is going to look like in in a, a couple months here, and so kind of stressing me out you know it's one of those weird places where there's a million things to figure out but I actually can't take any like practical steps towards accomplishing any of them at the moment so you know it's the yeah. it's all exciting stuff that we're moving towards it's just in the moment of hey we don't know what any of it's going to look like so no transition is it's a pain in the ass like even if it's good stuff Still a total pain. Yeah. Let me ask you this, since this is the mental health show. Yeah. Do you find that being in transition like this and the stress from it, does it exacerbate your anxiety or depression or both? Um, so the, the not funny part, but the interesting part is that I am not like a planner. I don't super care to have a bunch of plans and know things ahead of time. I usually just kind of go by, you know, kind of just roll with things. And Brooke is a super planner, so it's awesome. We kind of balance each other out. But... Since being married, I have gotten a lot more, I would say, anxious about the future, right? Because now I'm worried about, am I, like, if job-wise or if we don't find a place to live or whatever, then I'm also, I feel like I'm going to, you know, fail mm. Brooke or, you know, something like that, you know, and be essentially actively ruining her life because we kind of jumped into being married together. And then obviously if that, if, you know, we hit financial difficulties or whatever, my my instinct in my head is to go to... If if she hadn't married me, she would be in a better spot, you know, which is not I mean, there's not a lot of like factual basis to that because I have no idea what her life would look like. But so it, it 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 that part of it, I would say, because a lot of times in like the worst bits of my depression, it, it looks a lot like, hey, you are hurting the people around you like you are always a burden, things like that. 
yeah. and so that part is definitely I have to fight a lot harder and be a lot more honest with her about what my brain is reverting to in those moments. Yeah, I totally so. get that. I absolutely one hundred thousand percent get that. And that hearing you say all that makes me depressed. Like that's that's the worst feeling in the world, especially when you believe the lie of the American male that you're supposed to be the breadwinner, that you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to earn more than she does, that she's your help meet, whatever the crap that means. You know, when you believe that lie. Oh my gosh, it makes it so much worse. When you and for me, it was I found my worth and my identity for so long in what I did. It had nothing to do with who I am at my core, you know, yeah. who I am on a on a soul level. It was all about what I do and what I earn and what kind of notoriety I can get. So man, that sucks. I'm sorry. That's ugh, that's no fun. It's all right. We're we're making it. I I'm sorry if I uh offended your notoriety by not even giving you a name on this podcast that's uh yeah that was offensive well that's all right what's his head that does the intro said your name i think so what's his head long train productions yes Mm -hmm. want to do a giveaway let's do it Ooh, let's do a giveaway hey you people who listen to our podcast that's you right that's you you're listening right now uh if you want to go to to iTunes, if you haven't done that yet, this week, like right now, go to iTunes this week only. This week only. Go to iTunes, leave a five-star review with actual an actual comment. Like you have to actually type words and uh, leave it on iTunes. Take a screenshot of it and email it to us this week only. And we will email you a copy of our brand new ebook. I love Jesus, but... Embracing the tension between faith and mental health. So, leave an iTunes review with five stars. Leave a little comment, screenshot it, email it to us at cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. Win a free book. It's just that awesome. Boom. Boom. Kablam. I dig it. Can you dig it? We can dig it. Can y'all dig Okay. Um, name that song. I assume it has something to do with digging it. Yeah, whatever. I don't know it. Do you know who did it? No. Good, me either. Uh, I know like random lines from songs, but I'll have no idea who it is or who it's from. Like play and name that tune, I would lose every time. You know what's awesome is like for sure there's somebody listening to the podcast who is like, I know who it is, but we I can't are... believe you don't know that. There's Email no to, to us if you know us. who did that little song. Yeah. Email mm-hmm. us. Tweet us. Tweet at us, as Robert Vore says. Tweet at us. Yeah. Facebook at us. Instagram at us. At me. Come on. At us. Hey, guess what? What? I'm going to New York the end of May. Yeah, you are. Oh, I'm so bummed. Yeah, not that you're going to New York. To you, but that you're not going to be there. That I'm not going to be there. I know. It's going to be so much fun. If you're in the New York area, anywhere close to New York City, uh, I don't know what kind of accent that was. It wasn't New York <laughs> was or Southern. New York. But it was, it was a, I don't know what that was. Uh, me trying to do a New York accent is ridiculous in a way because I've been told I'm slightly Southern. Um, anyway, going to be in New York City May 31st and June 1st. May 31st with Stigma Fighters at the NYU Bookstore doing a reading of the latest Stigma Fighters anthology. <laughs> and then um, Sarah Fader and I are going to get to speak at a performing arts high school while I'm up there. So super pumped. May 31st, that evening, NYU Bookstore. If you're in the area or somewhere close, come hang out, please. Nice. Speaking of speaking, I guess, this summer, <laughs> since, since we're there, this summer I actually set a goal for uh, QPR suicide prevention trainings. What's that mean? So I'm certified through the QPR Institute to do suicide prevention trainings for groups of any size, and I can certify you and come in and speak to your 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 staff, your church staff, your faculty. I've done school faculties. Uh, you know your small group, your volunteers of that for your youth group, things like that. So if you're interested in that, and you are somewhere probably within like four hours of driving time from Atlanta, shoot me an email. I would love to. I would love to do ten of those this summer. Uh, I have a few in the works, but I would love to do some more of that. So that's awesome. Hey, would that be beneficial to places like? city government, uh, like police and fire departments? I'm sure that's, well, I say that. I would hope that a lot of, you know, police departments and stuff have some kind of training that they go through already, but I don't know that for sure. So 
What about I would, schools? But I would love to. Definitely schools. Uh, I've done it at schools with teachers and things. So um, I would love to do that for you and all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So good. That was my um, Rob Bellum impersonation. So go. good. Do you listen to his show? Uh, no, I started. I listened to the first one when he started it, and I have a hard time focusing on just one person talking for a long time. Oh, so you don't listen to my show either? <laughs> what a jerk. No, I just, when people are having conversations, I enjoy it a lot more than when there's just a one, one man person, band. So. Sure. I love the Robcast. And he has, he has guests on from time to time. Uh, this week, he had a dude on who was so amazing that I can't remember his name. But uh, it was a really good conversation. I love the Robcast. Anyway, that's just random tidbit. Rob Bell doesn't pay us anything for that. Speak for yourself. <laughs> this is why I check the emails. <laughs> that is fantastic. Do we have anything else? I don't think so. I don't know. All the normal stuff. Rate us, tweet at us, share <laughs> Send us, us money. On, yeah. Hit us up on social media. You Support know us drill. on Patreon. <laughs> Go buy our book on Amazon. Oh, my gosh. All the normal awesome. stuff. Hey, this week yep. we talked with Stephen Mansfield about healing church hurt. And you actually... Tell us about this because you set this interview up. Man, this book is so good. This dude is, he's all about tough love. I used this book about a year ago for an online small group that I did on religious recovery because there's a lot of people who have been hurt by the church and an astronomical amount. And so I opened up this online small group about a year ago, had... 12 or 15 people in the group, and we worked through portions of his book plus some of my own material. And um, this book is its just powerful because he's not coming to wrap you in a warm blanket and tell you all the sweet things that you want to hear because you've been heard and the church has done you so wrong. If that's what you're looking for, this is not that book. This guy says, hey, you know what? The ball's in your court. You've been hurt, and that sucks, and that's terrible, and I'm sorry. What are you going to do about it? That's what this book's about. So it's what are you going to do about it, and here's how to heal. Here's how to move on. Here's how to not just sit in a corner and pick at your scabs because you never heal if that's all you do. So a great episode. He's a brilliant guy. He has written some uh, – biographies of some like really freaking famous people and then all of a sudden he writes this book so we talk about that a little bit but uh, it's a i think it's a fantastic interview it is it is i really enjoyed it we'll go on and get to it here so thanks for listening to our intro bit and now here is our episode with steven mansfield well, hello. Welcome back to the CXMH podcast. I am Steve Austin, and I am here as every week with my buddy, my partner in crime, Robert Vore. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you. How glad are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Good. Well, I'm glad you're here, too. So, hey, today we have on the show Stephen Mansfield, a New York Times bestselling author, popular speaker who also leads a media training firm based in Washington, D.C. He first rose to global attention with his groundbreaking book, The Faith of George W. Bush, a bestseller that Time Magazine credited with helping shape the 2004 U.S. presidential election. The book was also a source for Oliver Stone's award-winning film, W. Mansfield's The Faith of Barack Obama was another international bestseller. He has written celebrated biographies of Booker T. Washington, George Whitefield. Is that Whitfield? It's Whitfield, isn't it? It's not Whitefield. Is that right, Stephen? Yes, it is Whitfield. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, he has written celebrated biographies of Booker T. Washington, George Whitfield, Winston Churchill, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. I'm so terrible at this. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth and Abraham Lincoln, among others. Publishers Weekly described his book "Killing Jesus" as masterful. Stephen's humorous but fiery Mansfield's book of manly men has inspired men's events around the world. His recent "The Miracle of the Kurds" has been selected as a book of the year by Rudolph. 
the leading Kurdish news service. As a result of this book, Mansfield has become a leading voice in support of the Kurds against the evils of ISIS in the Middle East. Stephen speaks widely about men, leadership, faith, the lessons of history, and the forces that shape modern culture. He also leads a media training firm, the Mansfield Group, that has worked with top politicians, CEOs, rock stars, major publishing firms, and educational institutions around the world. Mansfield lives in Nashville and the nation's capital with his wife, Beverly, an award-winning songwriter and producer. Stephen Mansfield, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you, man. When I go to heaven, I want you to introduce me to God because that was <laughs> off quite an introduction. Thank you. Well, and that's your short bio. <laughs> you know what's awesome about that is that we've invited you here to talk about literally nothing that was in that just mentioned. <laughs> just none of that. Oh, man. We're going to talk about the Washington Redskins, right? That's what I was told. So let's go. <laughs> oh, yeah. If we're here to talk about sports, I'm going to sign off now. <laughs> okay. Hopefully Robert can hang with you. Oh my goodness. No, we are here to talk about a book that you wrote actually several years ago, Healing Your Church Hurt, What to Do When You Still Love God But Have Been Wounded by His People. And I used this book about a year ago in a small group for that very group, people who still love God and want to engage with God but are scared to death to re-engage with the local body. And so it, it was a great resource in this small group. I had fantastic um, feedback from it. And when we started this podcast several months ago, I said, got to have this guy on. We got to talk about this because we talk to people who find themselves at the intersection of faith and mental health. And those in, in the world who live um, with everyday experiences with mental health know what stigma is all about, especially in the church. So we have a lot of people who are hurting and scared and and uh, don't know how to how to re-engage with the church or stay engaged with the church. And uh, I love your book because if I were going to sum it up, I would sum it up in two words. It's tough love. It's it's not a book that's going to coddle anybody. You're not letting anybody have a pity party over all the ways that they've been wronged. Um, you say it in the book better than I'm going to say it now, but it's a book by a coach. It's not the friend who always tells you only what you want to hear. So I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, I appreciate that. And of course, the reason that I was able to talk like a coach is that some people coached me. So I was really offering to other people in, on the page uh, you know, the help that I had received. So I'm excited to talk to you about it today. Well, Steve, tell us. Oh, yep, go, Robert. I was going to ask, you know, in your bio there, there's a bunch of biographies of, of famous politicians and, and famous figures throughout history. What made you want to write this book, which is kind of different from all the books that are there in the bio? Yeah, it's funny. I, I write mainly biographies and biographies that are somewhat oriented to faith. Uh, and then I'll break free and I'll write a book like The Search for God in Guinness or, you know, your church hurt book. Um, and so I'm grateful that I have a career that allows me to break from, you know, the, the, the brand that's been established for me and talk about things that are meaningful to me. What, what made me want to write this book is that in researching bios and writing biographies through the years, I've come to realize that almost everyone uh, that I've written about, especially if they were Christians, especially if they were people who were committed to church, had what I have, you know, I would use the term church hurts. They had church hurts. They were uh, damaged in some way, hurt in some way, had a painful season uh, because of their experience with church. Um, and so that, that, that made me realize that not only is this uh, fairly natural, but it's actually part of uh, our experience with church that can help us be better. It can help us grow and mature and deepen. Uh, and I wanted to bring that out. But then also, of course, as I describe in the book, I went through uh, a pretty tumultuous season uh, and I describe it honestly in the book and people, some people came and helped me and got me out of the ditch. And, uh, it, 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 it they, they did so in a, such a specific way, in such a unique way in terms of my experience that I thought, you know, there are a lot of people who are floating around out there, uh, bitter, angry, hurt by church, and they don't know how to get out of it. They'd like to reconnect with God. They might even want to reconnect with God's people, but they just don't know how to get out of it. So in short, the answer to your question is it was a combination of my experience and what I saw in the lives of great Christians through history that made me realize we've got to deal with this. Yeah. So you mentioned there a little bit about your own story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I don't mind at all. Uh, I was the senior pastor of a very large church. 
uh, in, in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, I went through uh, a divorce. My wife at the time decided that she wanted to leave the marriage for various reasons. Uh, she filed while I was in the senior pastor role. Um, we'd had a troubled marriage for a while, but we had kept it together and, and uh, you know, been able to lead this large church. Um, but finally, I found myself, uh, I voluntarily resigned the church. I'm not, I don't happen to believe that a pastor can take a, you know, do a good job with his church while he's going through a divorce. I, other people may feel differently, but I just didn't feel like I could. Um, but what happens was uh, all of the stuff that we've all seen happen before with churches, and I'm not blaming churches, I'm just blaming, you know, the human condition of sinfulness. Um, when a senior pastor leaves a church because he's had, because his wife has filed for a divorce, um, the assumption is that maybe he was having an affair. Um, the assumption might be that maybe, you know, she divorced him because he was uh, abusive. Um, some people, you know, go even further and say, well, he must have been taking money um, or something of that nature. Uh, you know, there, there are other accusations that start to kick in. None of those were true in my case, uh, but they were said. And before long, I began to, you know, I'd walk through a mall and I'd see people I'd known for years and they quickly would skirt by or we would talk for a minute and there'd be that look in their eye like, what did you really do? Why don't you tell me the truth? You know, there's a little bit of suspicion and distance that hadn't been there before. So, you know, I had my sleepless nights. I had my days pacing my room, you know, talking to myself, making a case as though before a jury, you know, trying to appeal. I um, I saw friendships drift away. I had the embarrassment of leaving a... Uh, the leadership of a large church. We were very successful. I mean that in the, in the, in the biblical sense. You know, we were leading people to Jesus and we were doing a lot in missions and we were growing and it was wonderful. Um, but it was it was an absolutely gut-wrenching season for me. And um, I just, I thought that I would just be sidelined for the rest of my life. And then finally, some, some friends of mine um, who were ministers, pastors, but they also were used to working with NFL figures and pro athletes and so on and knew how to deal with big egos and tough people, uh, they just kind of kicked their way into my life and said, you know, look, you stand with us, we'll stand with you, and we'll get you out of this. And they went to work on me, and it really was effective. So short answer to your question is, went through a divorce while the pastor of a really large, about 4,000-member church. And um, all the things that you can imagine came from that in terms of pain, suffering, humiliation, torment. But I got out of it and got on the other side and, and, um, and look back now, and, and, and I'm actually grateful for it. And that's what I want my readers uh, to experience as well. Yeah, that's so good. I think one thing that, that strikes me is, you know, we've talked – a good bit on this show. We went through a, a, a survey done by Lifeway Research that shows that, you know, the responses of people in the church to individuals' mental illness caused almost a fifth of them to break ties. And, you know, only 53% of people with mental illnesses say their church has been supportive. And so we talk a lot about that side of things, about maybe where we could be doing better. But what I love about your book is our goal, it may come across sometimes as we're always hating on, you know, the way the church is, is doing in this area of mental health. But our goal is to help it do better and to help people re-engage with churches that, that maybe haven't been doing it quite right or things like that. So it always I'm always kind of worried that people are going to assume that we're kind of hating on the church. But we're coming from a place much like you are of how can we push towards better because we believe in the church. So that's that's one thing that I really loved about this is you pointed out, I think, multiple times, hey, this this theory of, well, I love Jesus, but I'm just going to kind of do that on my own and not care about being in a church or anything. You point out some flaws in that that I think are really important. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I often joke that I'm, I'm a member of two churches, so I'm definitely going to heaven. Um, I, um, <laughs> my wife and I split our time between Nashville and DC about half the year in each place, uh, because of what I do in DC. And then she's in the music industry here and we have, you know, grandchildren and friends in Nashville. So, um, we're a member of, of a church in each city and I love the church. I love the church. I, I do think it's important that we all realize, you know, my problem was that I got, got so excited about church and loved leading a church so much. I forgot it was a church filled with sinners. And so I left myself open to being hurt. Um, the best church in the world, the most amazing choir, the most amazing ministry team has centers on it. And there are people who may not understand what you're going through. There are people who may believe gossip. There are people who, 
you know, have their lesser nature just like you have your lesser nature as well. I mean, all Christians are people aspiring to the character of Jesus, but also with their dark side, and that's going to come out at certain times. So I love the Church of Jesus. I love the body of Christ. I, I don't think you can love Jesus and hate his bride. Um, and so that I'm not. I'm exactly where you are. You know, I'm not. A, I'm not anti-church at all. But I do think we have to go into church uh, and go into our church relationships with our eyes open. And not having my eyes open almost devastated me. And that's that's the story I tell in the in the book and try to help people through. You talk about in uh, chapter one. You include a quote by George Whitfield that says, "A man's suffering are his best improving times." Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you know, the biblical perspective on the hard times in our lives is that we get through them and we're able to look back like the psalmist and say, it was good that I suffered, that I might embrace your word. Uh, in, in other words, you know, we're not promised we won't have hard times in the Bible. We are promised uh, that God can make all things work together for our good. And, and, and then that on the other side, we're able to look back and go, hey, it was good that I suffered. This was the most gut-wrenching experience of my life, the one I've just described. But if right now, given who I am, how I'm living, what I know, what I've experienced of God, who's in my life, what I'm allowed to do, if I had to, if I had the opportunity to push a button to make all of that happen again so that I could get back here to where I am right now, I would do it. My point is that when you go through hard times, if you go through them redemptively, if you go through them righteously, if you allow God to work through them, um, and you, you, you're willing to learn along the way and not just retreat in bitterness, then uh, you will actually be grateful on the other side. So Whitfield was right. A man's suffering times are his best improving times. And, you know, we're, again, this is not hidden from us in Scripture. James 1 makes it very clear um, that we will go through difficulties, we will go through hard times, but God uses us, uses us, uses it that, as the Phillips translation says, we might have the right kind of liberty in our lives. So I, I say again, absolutely gut wrenching for me to go through all of that I went through. But where I am now, who I am, how I've been shaped, etc. Like I say, I'd go through it all again, and I think that's the attitude that all of us Christians need to have when we get to the other side of hard times. Uh, there are a lot of people. Um, you know, sitting around bitter, angry, you know, addicted, what have you, um, as a result of church wounds they've received. It doesn't have to be that way. Instead, what I want for them is they're able to look back and go, well, that was hard. It was painful. But man, it produced such good stuff in my life. I'm grateful for it. I love it. I think it's so good to get to a place where we're able to say bad things have happened. I have been wounded. I have been hurt uh, either by bad decisions that I have made or bad decisions that others have made. But how do we balance telling the truth about what's happening or happened to us, but not wallowing in the pain of the past? Where do you find that balance? Yeah, great question. Uh, it really is the difference between, as I'm sure you've heard said before, going through it and letting it constantly go through you. Uh, when I'm bitter, hurt, angry, wounded, I cycle, I let that, I let the offense cycle through me over and over. I want to talk about it. I want to remember it. I want to replay it in my mind. I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty verbal. Uh, so I'll walk around my room talking to my, or drive my car, talking to my steering wheel, walk around my room, you know, talking to my pen or whatever, and just, just making a case as though to a jury or talking to people who aren't even there, sometimes talking to people who are dead, you know, because I'm just constantly trying to, um, I'm letting it cycle through me. And that's how bitter, that's how uh, that Hebrews 12 root of bitterness comes in. Uh, that's how you damage yourself. Um, so what you want uh, is to look at the situation for what it is and then begin to address the specific issues. Um, an unaddressed crisis, a, a crisis that you haven't really drilled down into, looked at honestly, and found answers for, is, is something you're just swimming in. It's like, it's like swimming in a pool of poison or toxic waste. It's going to continue to damage you. You're going to continue to drink it in. It's going to get worse. And we've all known people uh, who just are bitter people. They, they have got, you know, bitterness in Scripture, uh, the Greek word in the New Testament for bitter, is actually a, a bilious, poisonous liquid. It's, a, it's actually what that's describing. So picture that the waters of your spirit have had toxic waste dumped into them. And, of course, since, since a man lives out of his spirit, the waters of his spirit permeate everything he does. 
um, what happens is that you know a guy can't ask you to pass the salt at a dinner table without somehow you know releasing some bitterness. You, we, we all know people like this. Maybe we've been people like this. Uh, we talk, we tell about our past, bitterness instantly. The story comes up. The people I know, I can't be with for five minutes before they bring up that thing that their dad did you know, a decade or two ago. And I'm not saying that the thing their dad did is not serious and doesn't need to be addressed. You just don't want to see their lives tainted by it forever without any answer, without any redress. So the, the beginning is to look at the thing honestly um, and then to begin to approach it uh, from the perspective of biblical truth. And we can talk about that more if you want. But um, I, I think that, that the issue is to decide that you're going to get to the other side of this, uh, which doesn't mean forgetting about it, which doesn't mean just acting like it never happened in some kind of faith game. Um, but it does mean that you're going to get to the other side of it where it's not just cycling through you and, and poisoning you with every cycle. I think that's yeah. so good. I remember hearing a talk a while back from a psychologist about how, um, so if if you and I have some kind of experience and, you know, I think, hey, you were you were really a jerk there. And then, you know, my natural instinct is to go and call my wife and tell her about it. And then I tell my best friend and then I go and tell my coworker. Every time I repeat the thing that happened in my negative perception of it, my brain is, is essentially thinking, hey, this thing happened again. And so by the time I'm done with it, you have been a total jerk to me seven times, which then obviously changes my responses to you as we move forward. And so I think that's so good what you're talking about of recognizing the truth of a matter and moving forward, not just constantly going through the same thing again and again. Well, and let me just throw in a quick little scientific principle, too, or, or truth. You know, you probably heard the principle that it takes about 21 days for us to rehabituate, meaning if you want to if you want to create a new habit, get a new habit embedded in your life, it takes about 28 days because that's how long it takes for the brain synapses to create new connections to allow uh, that new habit. Well, picture, for example, Robert, that you're not just talking about it for seven days. You're, ta you're, you're talking about it and thinking about it and hurting over it for 21 days. You're actually rewiring your brain, uh, so to speak. Um, to uh, f to turn it and facilitate it and shape it towards bitterness. Hmm. Well, now maybe you're bitter. To, I'm just making this up now. Of course, I don't know your life, but right. you're bitter about the friend you play tennis with. Well, maybe now your brother-in-law does something. So now the tracks of bitterness in your brain are all are, are are already laid. So it's a faster trip for you to get to real defiling bitterness and anger and so on. And people layer it. What happens is you find out people aren't just bitter about one thing. Once they've uh, developed a lifestyle and a pattern and a thought process and and wrap their emotional life around bitterness. Um, they, 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 it's not just one person. It happens with another and another and another. And it can happen instantaneously. You can get bitter at the waiter in the course of a lunch at a restaurant. You know, not just a a, a thing that's happened for years. And it becomes a lifestyle because it's become a, a habituation. And that's both a spiritual truth. It's also though a biochemical truth, and that your brain is actually learning to morph according to your bitterness. Man, that's something we don't want to have happen. I think that is fantastic. I just listened to a talk yesterday with Sean Acor. Um, he's the the happiness guy. And he was talking about the exact opposite of this, that we can change our brains. That if you, if you do studies of people who are pessimistic, who uh, in a survey would, would rank as um, low-level pessimists, that if over 21 days you teach them just to wake up and – each day have three different things that they're thankful for for 21 days that at the end of that 21 days, you do the same survey and they score at least as a low level optimist. So I think it's fascinating how our brains, you know, we, we in church, we don't talk about our brains much. We talk about our hearts. We talk about our spirits, but we don't talk about um, science and the brain and, and how all of that impacts so much. So this is just a, this is a very cool talk. It, it makes me think about a personal experience I had several years ago. Uh, my wife and I tried to help a family who wanted to start a new church. And um, the guy said to me what I think every church planner says at some point, this is going to be church unlike anything you've ever experienced before. <laughs> we are going to do things different, right? And so we opened our home and we had this small group, the, the core team, you know, we use, use all that lingo. And they met in our home and we had some music and we were going to sit around and have um, Bible study sort of thing and sort of dream 
dream about what this church was going to look like. But in reality, all we did for the first several weeks was sit in a circle and talk about the ways we'd been wronged by other churches. And the church didn't last very long at all. I'm talking a matter of months because it's hard to heal when all you're doing is sitting around picking your scabs. It's really hard to find healing there. And I think that goes back to what you said in in chapter one or two, that the cause of Christ is hindered because the body of Christ is bruised. Yeah, there's we no are, question. No yeah, question. we are hurting, but but we, in our trying to be different, we, we weren't making matters any better. And, and then you talk about, um, sort of in this same thing, where there's a section in there where you talk about the tape that we play over in our minds over and over, how we've been wronged. But one of my favorite lines from the whole book is, but getting the facts right will never set you free. Man, you have put your finger on one of the real keys. Um, if, if, if you and I have a big blow up in church, Steve, and um, then I am, you know, let's, let's say we're, we're separated, you know, we're, we're distanced from each other. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sit there, if, if I didn't know what I know now, I would sit there and think, man, one day I'm going to have a chance to tell him the facts, and then he'll see that I was right. And then, you know, it ain't never going to happen. You know, I have this humorous thing in my book uh, that I describe where I have this fantasy where I'm sitting on a throne in a toga. It's, I don't know why I'm wearing a toga, but that's how I visualize it. And, you know, all, all the major news networks in the world are gathered in this big ornate room and all the people who have ever wronged me are lined up. And all at once, they have all come to the realization that they wronged Stephen Mansfield and they've begun to weep and they got on airplanes from around the world and they flew to where I was. And now they want to make it right because they've realized how wrong they were and how right I was. And I stop after, after that narrative, and I do this when I teach it live too, and I say, ain't never gonna happen. Turn to your neighbor, ain't never gonna happen. <laughs> it's just not gonna happen because the facts aren't the issue. The facts aren't the issue, and if everybody knew all the facts, we still wouldn't agree, and people are not gonna come to the conclusion that you were right. So if your whole ability to get past this, to get whole, to get clean, is waiting on other people to accept the facts, or even, by the way, for you to even know the facts. I mean, how many times have I sat around going, why did this happen? Why, why? Well, there's a point at which you've got to get beyond the facts. And I'm not trying to live in, you know, as we talk about this day, a day of fake news or post-factual, you know, Christianity or what have you. Not at all. I'm just saying the facts aren't the issue. The facts aren't the issue. We will never get, you'll never get clean because the facts are known. If the facts were known tomorrow and everybody involved believed them, as you experience them, you'd still be bitter. I'd still be bitter. We'd still be mad. The facts won't change everything. They, they might be helpful. It's great to know that the theft didn't happen or the person didn't say what you think they said, but that alone won't change the condition of your heart. And so that's really the beginning for me with people mm -hmm. when I'm working with them and trying to help them is I try to get them to realize, look, the, the facts are important and some additional facts might come out one day, but the condition of your soul is not related to the facts. The condition of your soul is related to a cycle of bitterness that has begun and will not end no matter how many facts we get straight. I love it. We were, uh, I, I attended a, an Episcopal church for the first time in my life Saturday night and went to an Easter vigil. I just wanted to experience it. I thought, why not? I got nothing else going on. It's Saturday night. And, um, they went through the liturgy and, you know, it's, it's cardio for Jesus, stand, sit, kneel over and over. And then it was time for uh, the sermon and it was 10 minutes maybe, but it was all about forgiveness. It was all about bitterness. And you talk about, uh, you know, sermons on forgiveness in the book. And I already had this interview in my brain over the weekend. And I thought, boy, here's another one. Here's another sermon on forgiveness. And it, it makes me uncomfortable even now, because I think we all have, well, maybe not we all, but I, you know, I have a list of things I'm working on. I have a list of things I'm working through and people I'm trying to forgive and issues I'm trying to get past. And I thought, man, here comes another one. I got to talk about forgiveness again. But it was, it was good. It just, I don't know, it made me think about your book. So it's a little side note. I won't charge you for that. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, that issue of forgiveness is really important. But the problem is 
we, we, we hear so many sermons about forgiveness and have such myths about it that we tend to think that forgiveness is, a, is about emotions management. You know, if we can just get to feeling differently about the person who wronged us, that'll be fine. But it's not really that way. You know, in, in the Bible, there are two concepts for forgiveness hidden in the language and in the history. One is that you forgive by conveying a wrong onto a scapegoat. We all remember this image from the Old Testament. And then sending that goat off, off into the wilderness. That's the scapegoat. The high priest would com- convey the sins of the people to a goat and send it off into the wilderness. The other, though, is that we release people from prison. And I, I tell people that what, they all, what all of us have somewhere in our lives is a little room with little prison, little, little jails in it, little cages. And in those cages are all the people who have wronged us. And we want to feel good about ourselves. We go into those little rooms, we get our stick and we poke those people with a stick and think about them and leer at them and, you know, say things to them. And then we close the door and leave. Now, of course, it's not a real room, but it's an emotional room. It's a place where we go to accuse those and to maybe even torture those in our imaginations who have wronged us. And the Bible says that to forgive is to, to let that to open that room and let those people go because the reality is that room is inside a larger prison that you yourself are inside. So everybody's being held in bondage because you won't forgive. But I, I, I want to just real quickly, in just a few seconds, say that I got to the point where I hated sermons on forgiveness because they didn't seem to make a difference for me. And finally, I came to understand a principle that made, made a massive difference for me. And that was that I, I could forgive if I could find a hook of compassion. Again, if you've wronged me and I just see you as evil and the Antichrist and just a demonic, terrible, evil, nasty, Hitler-like person, I'll never forgive you because I see you as evil. But if I say, you know, he wronged me because, you know, he, he there were some things he just didn't know. He did the best he knew, but he just didn't know some things. Or he wasn't, he had a rough family background, or that was the culture he was raised, and that's how he's always been treated. He didn't know any better. If I can just find some area of compassion for you and your life and maybe why you behaved the way you did, then I can hook into that compassion and forgiveness becomes possible. When we see each other as just outright evil and dark and d- demonically controlled or whatever, you know, on the, on the other side of the, of the whole Christian, uh, you know, kingdom of God, kingdom of, kingdom of darkness divide, we'll never forgive. But if I can just see you as a guy who's flawed, um, and a sinner like I am, and and find a hook of compassion for you, well, then it becomes possible to let you out of that emotional cage in my soul, and thus for me to get free, too. Man, that's good stuff. It's good stuff. I want to shift gears and talk about Van Gogh. Can we talk about Van Gogh? Let's talk about Van Gogh. So, amazing artist, and then he's hurt by the church, struck with depression and other mental illnesses, but something happened, and he changed there in the in the second half, I guess. Um, tell us about Van Gogh. It's just it's one of my favorite stories in the book. Well, Van Gogh was a man who actually felt like he was called to minister and to use the arts for minister, and, and he also wanted to be you know a, a clergyman. Um, but he was rejected by his church for a number of reasons, and this sent him into a real tailspin. Um, and throughout his life, he. You know, he, he, we all know he had dark periods. He cut off his ear and he would suffer from depression and all kinds of things. Um, but in time, he began to believe that he could use his art for the glory of God. And, uh, and, that, could, and that was really meant to be his minister. He was actually pushing on the wrong thing. So um, he began to forgive and, and things got better for him towards the end of his life. I think that's what you're referring to. But he, uh, the, the, the main story about Van Gogh is that he was tormented most of his life by his feeling of rejection and hurt by the church. And as you know, because you've read the book, I mentioned a lot of other people that folks would be surprised by, uh, famous people who had yeah. exactly the same experience. I mean, I could go on from, I could write a whole book on that, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and, you know, even Winston Churchill and all kinds of people we don't think of as necessarily being Christian leaders, um, deeply hurt by the church, but then Jonathan Edwards and, you know, all sorts of folks. But the bottom line is um, that Van Gogh, this famous artist, uh, was a man who suffered most of his life from from exactly the kind of church hurt that I'm describing in the book. It's just, it's, it's so, it, it is so interesting when you start unpacking these stories of people that we've heard about all our lives and go, gosh, I'm, there's some sense of I don't know, comfort or um, what Brene Brown talks about, the power of me too. Just knowing that that little old me is not alone, that these famous or infamous people have walked through this this valley or this pain too and 
then there are you know there are stories of these people who have chosen to heal their church hurts and i think if they can do it so can i um one of the sections in here a little earlier in the what it might be around the same section in the book but anyway there's a, a another part of the tough love um that i i just really appreciate from this book you talk about well i'll just read it for whatever else you believe about the church circumstances that have hurt you and driven you to this book you must admit that much of your hurt is your astonished horror that people you trusted could be so cruel true and you must own your foolishness in over trusting over lauding and over resting your sense of god and self on what mere human beings promised to do so if we if we use this one as as a sort of a way to wrap up here um Let's talk about that. The fact that we that we do over trust people and almost put them on a pedestal. How do we how do we move past that? What do we do different? Well, a, a couple of ways. The main way, though, is to uh, embrace biblical truth. For example, uh, Jesus loved us so much that he died for us, and yet maybe later today you could go to the end of John chapter two, and you'll see that it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to anybody because he knew what was in, in everybody. He, he didn't need men's testimony about himself um, because he knew what was inside of people. Now, that's a very cynical statement. You know, he didn't trust anyone. He didn't rely on anybody's testimony. That sounds very cynical. But he loved these same people enough to die for them. Um, so what he did was he loved them. He loved all of us. He loves all of us. But he, he doesn't put his trust in our opinions and our views and our uh, he knows there's darkness inside of us. Well, the same thing is true when we go to church. The problem is that we tend to go to church like we're going to heaven. We think everything's going to be perfect, and it's not going to be in this life. Um, when I go to church, I love the people there, but I also know it's a church full of sinners. I love my pastor. I've got two fantastic pastors. They're sinners. I know that they're sinners. I'm not saying they're going to you know, break out a gun and shoot me any minute. I just know that they're not always going to be perfect, and I don't expect them to be. The cutest little old Miss Biddy in the choir, for example, as sweet as she can be, baking cookies for everybody, singing every Sunday. Love her. However, she's a sinner, and she's flawed just like I am. She lives out the better angels of her nature most of the time, to borrow that phrase from Lincoln, but... At the same time, she's got darkness in her. She could maybe buy into some gossip about me, or she could maybe, I don't know, decide that I'm not that nice a person and kind of distance herself, and that would hurt me because I think she's awesome. So what often happens is we, we, we go to church expecting people to be angels, and they're not. So we need to find a balance between cynicism and complete, almost <laughs> idolatrous, hey, these people are awesome and they'll never do anything wrong, because that is the offense. Um, there are people I loved so deeply back when I was attending the church I pastored, and when they heard some negative about me that ended up, you know, of course it was not true as I say, um, man, that was it. Haven't seen them since. And that's devastating until I say, well, they're, they're flawed like I am. They're sinners like I am. I don't want them to be perfect. And a lot of people who walk around bitter, a lot of people are going to be sitting at bars tonight, you know, on their 19th whiskey and talking about how bad those Christians are, are people who really deeply in their hearts wanted the church to be perfect, wanted the pastor, the elders, the deacons, the small group leader, the whatever, to be angels. And when they weren't, they were devastated. Well, welcome to a fallen world. And and let's realize we're all that way. And you and you got to let go of accusing them because they weren't didn't have the perfect nature of Jesus. Nobody does, me least of all. And now let's move on and, and see if they, once I can get them to, once I can get my friends to think that way, um, then they begin to get free because they stop holding an accusation against people for not being perfect. And we can also, by the way, talk about what was their fault. You know, you got, we got to say, by the way, that some people have legitimate complaints about the church. They're child was molested they you know lied about i mean there are horrible stories and then some people were just ticked off because the what the pastor's wife wore or because they striped the parking lot strangely or <laughs> because they you know whatever they didn't get elected to the whatever board you know oh it's so true some people they just are just i mean i say this with love but the word the word in greek idiotes means unlearned one and so i <laughs> use the idiot a lot because that means we're just unlearned some people are just unlearned, and they expect the whole church to function their way, or they get up and leave. 
And um, it, the, some of the reasons that I've been told people have left churches are just stupid. And then some people have been absolutely in every possible way molested. And, you know, my thinking is that church should close down if it can't deal with these things. They, they harm these people horribly. Both can happen. But the beginning of getting free is to realize we're dealing with fallen people. And I, now I love fully, but there's not anybody in my life that I don't think, well, this person's wonderful, but they got flaws too. And I love them despite their flaws. And if they, they stick it to me one day, I'm not going to be that surprised. But it doesn't make me live defensive and tightened up and, and unloving. It, makes, it helps me love as Jesus loved, which is to know what's in people, but love them anyway. I think that is beautiful and so wise. It, it makes me think of being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And it, it really, what it really does, it reminds me of what my grandma has always said. And, you know, my grandma's always right, Stephen. Sure. But yeah. She said, as soon as you find the perfect church and you go there, it is no longer perfect. Exactly. exactly. And she's right. Yeah, that's right. There just is no perfect church. And, you know, I, I, I don't. I don't mean to speak too highly of myself, but I'm in a position in, in what I do where I spend a lot of time with senior leaders, um, with, with top-notch international-level Christian leaders. And I love them, and I admire them. But I'm going to tell you something that may blow your mind. They're all flawed. They're all flawed. <laughs> Some of them have trouble with their wives, and, or, their, or actually it's what their wives have trouble with them. Some are impatient with their staffs. Some have bad grammar. Some some have bad manners at the dinner table. I mean, I'm just telling you, what what's true of all of them is they're amazingly gifted and anointed by God, and they are all flawed. They can have wacko opinions about things. They can do silly things in politics. They can mismatch their socks. I mean, this is just what it means to live in a fallen world. And so, the sooner we accept that, the less we we go to church set up uh, by the flesh, the devil, and the world to be disappointed. Because there ain't nobody perfect. And that's that's exactly your grandmother was right, and I celebrate her wisdom. It's so good. Hey, you can check out Stephen's book, Healing Your Church Hurt, What to Do When You Still Love God But Have Been Wounded by His People on Amazon. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can find him at stephenmansfield.tv or on Twitter at Mansfield Writes. You can also listen to you on the Stephen Mansfield podcast, right? That's right. That's right. We talk about a lot of these topics, so join us. Yeah, if you want to connect with Steve, you can find him at gracesmessy.com or on social media at I am Steve Austin. You can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at Robert Vore. Stephen, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. A closing thought from you for some of our folks who maybe are dealing with mental illness and have, have been hurt by the church in some manner. Any closing thoughts? I want to say, first of all, I'm sorry for your pain. I want to say that sometimes the church absolutely mishandles these things, and um, I, and for all of them, I apologize. But the church is the bride of Jesus. Find another local expression of the church and get in there. There are good people who love you and want to help you, and your mental challenges, your emotional challenges aren't some kind of stigma that should keep you apart from Jesus and from the body of Christ. We love you and want you to be part of us. So good. Well, thank you so fantastic. much for joining us today, Stephen. Uh, it was a really fantastic conversation. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. You have a great day. Hey, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.